Hi, welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and someone with reverence for the living world. And I'm very pleased to have joining us by phone from Hawaii is Elizabeth Sartoris. Uh, Elizabeth Sartoris is an evolution biologist, futurist, speaker, author, and she currently teaches about entrepreneurship and local living economies in Hawaii. So she's appeared in films such as Occupy Love, I Am, Love Thy Nature, Money and Life. Her books include Earth Dance, Living Systems and Evolution, A Walk Through Time, Biology Revisited, and Gaia's Dance. So welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Well, thank you, Laura, and aloha to everyone. Aloha. So you have quite the background. So just tell me a little bit about your story and um, your journey in life? Okay. Um, I was uh, born in the Hudson Valley of New York State in the U.S., and I had the great privilege of being able to run free in nature and to learn from nature on my own as a little kid. Uh, children don't have those opportunities anymore. And I also grew up on 100% organic food, which is kind of interesting because people nowadays think it's something new. And at the time I was a child, I'm now 86 years old and a (laughs) great-grandmother, and when I was a child, the whole world was eating organic food. So uh, that's a kind of important little piece of my background. After that, I uh, uh, studied science and became an evolution biologist, and I did so in order to become a good futurist because I believe that only when you understand the past that humanity has come from can you see the possible trajectories for the future, which we, of course, are co-creating as we speak. (laughs) And uh, then there was a time when I got uh, discouraged with science because it wasn't answering my big questions of who are we, where did we come from, where are we headed as humanity? And that was considered philosophy. I wasn't really a scientist, you know. So um, I went off to Greece, to the Greek islands, to for 13 years. My intention had been to write novels to explain the human condition to myself. But uh, as the years went by there, and I spent so much time out in nature on this little island, I realized that I still wanted to put the story of evolution together in, in my own way. Uh, I was also a little discouraged with our total focus on the Darwinian uh, idea that everything proceeds in evolution through uh, competition, when it was clear to me that cooperation was far more important. And, of course, we humans cooperate hugely in cities by the millions. We're a true social species. And now evolution biology is catching up with me. And a lot of others are paying attention to the importance of cooperation. So I hope that's enough of a background story. It is quite a background story. And so there's there's a lot of ways I want to go. But I'm going to focus, um, just going to take a deep dive in the, in the article you just sent me about ending the new food wars. So um, first in this article, you described yourself as a foodie. So what do you mean by that when you say you're a foodie? Oh, it means that uh, I sometimes think that I incarnated to eat because it's such fun. It's so tasty. (laughs) I love food. I love cooking. I cook all my own food from pretty much from scratch. 
even though I live alone, and <laughs> that's what I call a foodie, just serious interest in food. I'm interested in all different cuisines and, and fascinated by the different diets people choose, so it's that focus on food. But you say there's a new food war, so what do you mean by that new food war? Yes, well, what I'm getting caught up in is people promoting their particular diets as the only way for humans to eat. Now, as an evolution biologist, I find it very peculiar that we tell each other what to eat. There's no other animal on the planet that has to tell it tell its own kind what to eat, right? And so that alone is kind of interesting. But, of course, food has become an industry. And, uh, and so the, the industrial food producers are kind of uh, looking to what diets people could choose uh, in competitive ways. They're, the food companies are competing with each other. Like right now, the producers of vegan food are, see themselves in competition with the producers of uh, foods that have meat in them. And uh, so what we're finding is that the paleo people who think they should eat a heavily meat-based diet are kind of at war with the vegans who don't think anyone should eat any kind of meat in their diet or even meat products. So there's this, this uh, war going on fighting among ourselves, even though most everyone is interested, who gets into these uh, conversations, is really wants healthy food on the planet. And my point in, the, in that article is that everyone who's fighting for humanely produced, clean, non-toxic, healthy, organic food should be on the same team rather than allowing ourselves be, to be divided by these corporate interests uh, into fighting each other. Yeah, and so, um, and, and you ground this on, you know, where can we find unity? And, and so in, in your writing, I think one place that um, people with different viewpoints can find unity is that we must end the practice that tortures animals in factory farming. We must end that. Absolutely, Laura. We must end all of those, those CAFOs, as they call them, where they pen up animals under terrible conditions. Uh, and uh, but but what uh, isn't so widely recognized is that we are equally torturing the plants. We put them into fields that are stripped of their nutrients, and we and and they can only hang out with their own kind, you know, as monocultures, which is very unnatural. And then they are fed toxic diets of of pesticides and fertilizers and things like that. And if you don't think plants are tortured in that situation, it's because you don't understand that plants are even more sentient than animals. And that's just not known. I learned it as an evolution biologist. And uh, uh, plants actually have all of our senses, like a tree can hear, see, smell, taste, and touch. And we don't, we don't believe that because we don't see eyes on them. We don't see ears on them. Uh, but those organs are dispersed all over the bodies of trees and their roots. And we've actually measured a dozen senses that they have beyond what we can uh, feel. They, can, they are sensitive to all kinds of gradations of radiation and of chemicals in the soil and of amount of sunlight uh, and which direction it comes from. There are just so many things about them uh, that 
uh, you know, I have friends who are trees. I commune with them because they're they're delighted when people talk to them. And uh, Native people used to say, uh, or probably still do say, sing to a tree, sing your gratitude to a tree. And in modern science talk, that means exhale your carbon dioxide, which it needs, while you take in its oxygen, which you need. And it's that interface between plants and animals that developed in evolution billions of years ago when there were only uh, bacteria on the earth and some of them ended up emitting carbon dioxide and others oxygen and they came into these alliances where they were literally feeding each other. And from those very ancient ancestors are modern plants and animals uh, uh, evolved and of course even a vegan garden if it's grown in healthy soil the plants themselves are not vegan they are eating the uh, decomposing worms and, and insects and to get their protein their nutrients from the soil so I don't know would that matter to a vegan I would hope you know, it would at least matter that that plants can be tortured as much as animals. And that is, I mean, it's, it, and, and if we if we recognize and see the sentience in plants, does that reduce the sentience of humans or other animals? Does that make plants worth more? It it doesn't, right? It, that's almost at the heart of that competition. Is that, but but it's actually um a, it's a living collaborative world. So plants yeah. have sentience and. Um, but it's yes. not an idea in our society. It, it, no, it isn't. We we tend to treat them like things. I mean, my heart breaks every time I see them cut down a tree unnecessarily mm-hmm. on the ground that it's littering or the birds in it are pooping uh, onto the ground or onto parking lots, you know. They just cut about 20 trees on the property that uh, my uh, unit where I live is on. And we were such a beautiful green island, and now suddenly they're seeing these these trees as pesky things, <laughs> right? And they don't get that they were screening us from a, an electric uh, substation, from the radiation from the station, and they were giving us the oxygen, and, uh, you know, they were shading us and just doing so many good things. But they're just objects in the way to humans. And that's a terrible thing that we do. It is, uh, and, and and seeing seeing the 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 world as an object, we see each other as objects, and so yeah. moving away from that um, labeling and naming each other as objects, and moving more to a living world. And so, in the book uh, Braiding Sweetgrass, um, um, yeah. the author um, talks about um, her language was more verb oriented, whereas our language is so much more noun oriented. Yeah, uh, Robin Kimmer. Uh, um, yeah. So, um, but I want to just briefly go back again to factory farming because where where can people with all these different ideas, if we were able to um, clear and be very clear on, um, you know, this factory farming is not good. It's not good for the planet because of how it produces. Um, and I, I'm really pleased this weekend or soon um, the Swiss are going to be um, voting on banning factory farming. So if we were able to, instead of arguing about whether you should eat a meat diet or all vegan diet, if we could all come together and say, hey, you know, factory farming concentrates wealth and hurts water and hurts soil and look this is not a way for animals to live this is torturing animals this is not um, a living world so we've got to end end factory farming and coalesce around that idea of ending factory farming so we're going to take a break and we're talking with elizabeth sartoris author of several books including earth dance 
Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Headline. I'm very pleased to have joining us via phone from Hawaii is Elizabeth Sautoris, author of several books, an evolutionary biologist. And um, so when we before in the first segment, we we're talking about an article you wrote about ending the new food wars, about how we're kind of fighting about which diet's better for the planet. And 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 your point is let's let's find points of um, cohesion and points of unity. And one of those is to end factory farming. And another one is just to simply recognize that our individual food choices affect the larger planet. Can we all agree that, you know, the way we eat affects the planet? Yes, absolutely it does, because we are the consumers of what's being grown. And and what's being grown is uh, taking over uh, large, important aspects of our global civilization. Uh, when we uh, before our break, you were talking about the importance of ending those terrible animal uh, CAFOs, uh, and I totally agree. And I had been talking about how plants and animals are interwoven in evolution itself. Every forest is an interaction of plants and animals. You can't the Amazon when we worry about cutting the trees in Amazon. Uh, it also kills the animals in the Amazon, right? There's no such thing as a as a forest without its animals. And so that that tight coupling all through evolution made the old family farm a wonderful way to grow food because the using the plants and animals together on those farms actually increased the fertility of the soil and the water table uh, was benefited by it. Whereas when we separated plants and animals in agriculture, we created two problems from that original solution. And the two problems are that we had to then feed the plants and the animals separately and artificially. And then we turned that into not only separating plants from animals, but into monocultures that could be controlled by big business. Now, when we talk about... Um, uh, when a vegan would argue, you know, that we shouldn't use any animal foods, one of the things that is important to recognize is that the only way to revive desertified grasslands, uh, which are all over Africa and, and the Asian steppes and, and so big parts of the world, the only way to, to re-green those deserts is to put hoofed animals back on them. And when you put hoofed animals onto large spaces where they can graze freely, there is no problem from their farts. <laughs> there is no problem from anything about them because they are out in the open, they're widespread, and they, their hoofs break up the clumped grass, and then their, their poo fertilizes it through the dry season when the grass alone cannot sustain itself because the soil bacteria die off. And the role of the animals is to keep those healthy by their uh, breaking up the grass and, and pooping on it. And so we, that is not a dangerous way to, uh, to raise animals. And on the family farm, what were you going to do with the animals that were serving your plants, uh, eating them, first of all, killing them humanely, the way we hope plants get killed more humanely <laughs> when they're not tortured, uh, all indigenous cultures were extremely grateful to their, the animals they consumed, treated them like brothers. Their role was to keep those animal species healthy. 
and that should be ours. We should have a sacred approach to all food, whether it's plant or animal, and realize that uh, one another problem that I have no problem with people choosing to be vegans, but they also need to be aware that by growing the number of people that choose that lifestyle, it has gotten the big companies so super interested that they have, are realizing that CAFOs should be closed themselves because it's cheaper for them to grow artificial meat in vats and then tell everybody, hey, you can eat meat again because this is vegan meat. And uh, the most vegans I know are want to promote only healthy vegan food, but the big companies know that if they can make their vat food cheaper than, you know, healthy vegan food, that's going to do us a great disservice. So what I'm saying is you have to look at the bigger picture and not get too slotted into your particular slot because I'll tell you, you can find research uh, that will promote any kind of diet as the best one. Uh, yeah, and they're, they're yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I want to be really clear, you know, that vegan yeah. diets are great, and, and, and with the system we have right now, it is a way of reducing carbon footprint. But I think you make an, an incredible observation when you talk about how big food has co-opted the vegan movement. And so mm -hmm. one way is the consolidation. Um, and so you want to talk a little bit about um, the consolidation that happened within um, some vegan brands? Or some brands. I'm, some, not, sure. Okay. I'm not sure. Well, so, I mean, mean okay. Uh, well, one consolidation, of course, is Amazon bought Whole Foods. So there's there's fewer companies that are larger. Oh. But but I also, um, I like when you, you have this phrase that I haven't heard before, vegan vat food. And that's vat, V-A-T. So what do you mean by vegan vat food? That is literally growing artificial protein in, in vats in factories. Because, you know, it's pesky for those big companies to have to run CAFOs. Uh, they're, they're horribly uh, awful places, and, and nobody wants to be in those terrible chicken coops and cow lots and things of the, the con con concentrated meat-growing industry. That's really got to go. Um, and and uh, we don't want to to eat. You know, there was a movie long ago called Soylent Green about artificially produced one food kind of thing that was feeding all humanity. It was very prescient because that's what they would like. They would like to shut the meat producing companies. Uh, want they, if they're shut down, then the they can turn to growing the artificial meat in vats and call themselves vegan and, and look very righteous. But they're feeding us toxic food out of those vats. Even the, the early stuff like the Impossible Burger, you know, with the beet juice in it to make it look like it was bleeding. But they're full of chemicals. It's a dangerous food. It's not a healthy food at all. And the more they, you know, put, do these things chemically, the worse it gets. So they're going to be toxic foods, and they're going to be sold as a vegan diet. So we have to look out for that, and we have to, at the same time that you're fighting against the animal CAFOs, you must fight against the Monsanto, now Bayer, uh, toxic growing of the food plants that the vegans are eating. 
Um, uh, yeah, exactly. And uh, I mean, I've, I've talked about this a, a couple times. We have the author of What Your Food Ate, um, Anne Bilkay and uh, David Montgomery. And, and so it's so complicated. Our food system, life is very complicated. There's like mm-hmm. o- over 50,000 known phytochemicals. We don't know what our body need, needs. It's, it's so complex. But, <laughs> but when we're eating food from living soil, I mean, I think I can yes. feel it. Can't you feel it? Can you feel oh, it? Oh, absolutely. And look, I can't, I can't go into a supermarket and, and eat a, a fruit or a vegetable and have it, it's almost unrecognizable from what that same fruit or vegetable tasted like when I was a kid. Now, here in Hawaii, we still have some pretty naturally grown foods, and one of our wonderful crops are apple bananas, which are have just, they have a flavor that's just lovely. It's a, sort of an apple flavor to the banana. Mm, no, uh, but we have to pay more for those uh, properly grown bananas than for the imports that are badly so We're going to have to take a break. We'll come back. Oh. We're talking with uh, Elizabeth Santoris. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and someone with reverence for the living world. And uh, joining us by phone from Hawaii is Elizabeth uh, Santoris. Um, she is an author, evolutionary biologist, futurist. Um, and so one of the things, your point in, in a lot of your articles or your other writing is the need for reverence and gratitude to all living beings, including microbes, fungus, plants, animals, and recognizing the power of this cooperation. So, and you want to talk a little bit more about the living world? Oh, absolutely. You know, we can learn everything we need to learn in politics or economics from our own bodies, from evolution. Uh, I, I so focused on cooperation Every one of our bodies is made of uh, over 50 trillion cells, each of which is as complex as a large human city. And if you want to look at ethics, it's there in the body because, uh, for example, if any part of the body gets injured, no cells would rise up and complain if extra resources went to that part of the body because they're all aware through communion rather than communication. They're direct knowledge of each other. These are things that we don't really understand very well yet. Uh, but they, um, they, they are constantly, every cell is constantly negotiating with its larger community, its organ, and the organs have to negotiate with the organ systems. They, there's never a vote. I mean, imagine in your body if your cells voted on things and half the cells were left out and, and lost whatever was important in their society. Uh, so we can learn things like no indigenous society ever used a vote to make decisions. There are so many things you can learn from your body, the economics of it. Uh, the the blood cells being raw material blood cells in the bone made in the bone marrow all over the body and then swept up to the northern heart lung industrial system let's say and and where the oxygen is added and the blood is distributed for the heart and imagine the heart saying uh, you know which, which organs uh, can afford to buy the blood. Uh, you know, these are lessons of politics and economics. They're in my books. <laughs> uh, 
and and we we have to learn from nature the way indigenous people did when you learn, live in harmony with nature and rather than seeing nature as a set of resources for our exploitation to fit our economy into nature rather than to trying to fit nature into our economy as resources and if we do that, if we fit our economy into the ways of nature without being destructive, and we can do that, we can recycle, we can forbid, we should fight against anything that cannot be recycled, for example. These are important crusades, and you can tell I'm a plant advocate, so uh, I can, couldn't possibly be against vegan diets. But I want every one of us to be fighting for healthy food and equally concerned with the torture and toxification of the plant supply as we are with the same things in the animal uh, yeah, food uh, production. We've got to put them back together. The UN actually issued a report about 10 years ago saying that the return of family farms all over the globe was the only way to meet the food needs of the future. We must bring the plants and animals back together and then decide if we want to only eat one or the other of them that we have that individual choice. Yeah, it's all individual, and everyone finds what's individual for them. And right. I know and the UN has some wonderful things about no-cost natural farming, especially right now when we're dealing with so many, um, there's fertilizer, so many problems with the dominant system. But um, yeah. permaculture, all, all these um, natural farms actually can mm -hmm. produce per acre. Uh, more. Yeah. Um, now, I'm going to jump a little bit, but I, you had a, a beautiful article, um, Letter for, for the Future and Your Newest, newest Fifth Great-Grandchild, and that was written mm -hmm. in um, uh, January of 2020. Um, but one of the things you said in that letter is that you expect your great-granddaughter or grandchild um, will feel a sense of um, rage at us, at, at the way that we lived and the decisions that we made and how it affected, how it will affect future generations. Yes. I'd be surprised if they weren't angry because we left them with uh, very, very big challenges. And uh, kind of it will look to them as though we were really stupid for doing things the way we did. Why would we have separated plants and animals, for instance, when they belong together? Uh, why would we have developed all these toxic and non-recyclable materials that have have wrecked our, our oceans, our waters, our land, our air, uh, all of these things, and then they, they're left with the whole mess to clean up, right? What about forever chemicals did you not understand? What yeah. about <laughs> ocean acidification did you not get? What, really? what about soil depletion? You know, what about really? the loss of minerals in our soil and in our food? And obviously the climate crisis. And, and so the other thing that you did in that article is you recalled your angry time when you were really angry at the Vietnam War. And mm -hmm. a poet um, wrote you a poem. And in, yeah. in that line, it said, somewhere the tears and the agony are stored into the chest of thunder. So what did that mean to you? Yes, that was such a wonderful line because I got right away that he was saying, you know, your rage is, is an expression of energy and you could be using it for positive things instead of just banging your head against the wall and hurting yourself. And so I say, you know, everybody is needed to make a better future. And the way to make a better future is to start living it now treat people the way you want people to treat each other in the future. 
eat food that you think people should be eating in the future. You know, all this is how the future comes about, is how you live it. And those people that decide they can survive this, that they can be uh, rational about uh, climate change and move to higher ground and live in communities that take care of each other, uh, the best thing about COVID was that we elevated caring and sharing to heroic status. That is super important. We also saw that when you lock humans up, nature can regenerate very quickly. The skies cleared up and all those those things that we learned. We must not let those lessons uh, go unnoticed. You know, we have to take them into the future, get into community, find ways that you can... Uh, grow as much food locally as you. I'm a great advocate of localization. Um, so there, we know the answers. We know what we should be doing. Uh, but sometimes we get stuck at the bottom of a dark well, and I say, lift your consciousness up high so that you can look down on this human drama, not to judge it, but to discern what's good, what's bad, what's working, what isn't. And don't bang your head against the wall if what you were trying to get done didn't work, but look for somewhere that you can enter a positive flow to move into a better future because we're all needed, whether we're poets or computer repair people or uh, cooks or bakers or babysitters or what. You know, everybody has something to give in community when you recognize and form community. And that idea of transmuting anger into action, I mean, I'm feeling this mm-hmm. with the Ukraine war right now. And so yeah. I, I'm going to um, quote again from this article. From my vantage point as, as an evolutionary biologist and futurist, the transmutation of energy from anger and hate to love, from war to peace, from fierce competition to caring collaboration is a matter of, of, of m- maturing. Yes, absolutely. There is a maturation cycle in, in evolution where a hostile competition turns into mature cooperation, just as we expect our teenagers to be feisty and competitive and then to settle down and be good cooperative citizens, right? When you, once you see this pattern, you see it everywhere. And you know that that's our task is to grow up and to behave like grown-ups. And that we're, we're in the last gasp of the empire-building eras. We've had empires ruled by emperors, and then we got national empires, and now it's uh, corporate empires. We're living in a corporatocracy. It's trying to take over. It would like to feed us only on vat food and have us be obedient and, and give us social credit scores and, and keep our, our noses in our iPhones so that we don't look at history and at the big picture and at the complexities and how to simplify them so that we can go into a more mature future in which we understand that we are body, mind, souls, that we have spirit, that we have flesh, that we, this is, you know, I have a keyboard model that, uh, that helps you understand this and, and why it's important to play the whole keyboard, to be reverential, to be caring, to be loving, to take that anger at what's wrong into building something positive. Yeah, and so, um, so is so we we're in the what many are calling the sixth mass extinction on the planet, and that that's really mm-hmm. hard to wake up to. But, 
behind that sixth mass extinction, or what are the what are the elements behind that that the way that we're living that's causing so many damage? Is our is our is our dominant story, um, our belief systems? Uh, why are we why are we being so cruel to our to this living world? <laughs> And to ourselves. And to ourselves. <laughs> uh, why do we invent so many species suicide weapons, from from uh, nuclear weapons to uh, toxic atmospheres and, and poisoned rivers and all of those things that are doing us in? Because we got caught up in thinking that capitalism was equivalent to democracy, which it is not, uh, because capitalism depends on, on ownership on exploitation of labor, on putting fences around things and saying, you know, this is mine and you can't come onto this territory and you have to buy my product because I've killed my competition and I've, you know, consolidated my... (laughs) All of this stuff uh, of building economics that we now know are unsustainable and that word means cannot last. So we don't have to bring down these empire builders. That's a waste of energy. They are imploding on their own. They are unsustainable. We need to focus on knowing that there are ways of going into caring and sharing that's our evolutionary destiny. And we already live by the millions in these hives we call cities. We're a true social species. All day long, we don't uh, hit each other on the sidewalk. We, don't, we pay at the supermarket. We stop at the traffic lights. Uh, we help each other when somebody falls down in the street. We are naturally co- cooperative creatures, but we've been taught our story is that we're only competitive and that competition is the only way to evolve. It isn't true. As soon as ancient bacteria started forming communities, which eventually became the cells we're made of, uh, very highly cooperative communities. Uh, as soon as that happened, you know, nature started selecting things that were internally cooperative over things that were competitive. Because the internal cooperation of a city, of course, makes it, uh, it makes it thrive. If we start doing only competition in such cities, we would this, this, the whole thing would fall apart. The human relationships would disintegrate, right? Yeah, right. So, so we're gonna, we have to really get this story of cooperation. The story of cooperation, so and we're going to take a break, and we'll be back with Elizabeth <laughs> Santoris. Santoris. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and someone with reverence for the living world, and very pleased to have joining us by phone from Hawaii, Elizabeth Sautoris. Um, she's an evolutionary biologist, futurist speaker. Um, she's appeared in, in films such as Occupy Love, I Am, Love Thy Nature, and Money and Life, and her books include Earth Dance, uh, Living Systems and Evolution, A Walk Through Time, and Gaia's Dance, The Story of Earth and Us. So welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. And um, another article that you had that was really interesting is this word, and I'm not even sure how to pronounce it right, um, ecosophacy. You know, it's the mixture of the word economy and ecology. So you want to talk about the intersection of economics and ecology? Yes, yes. Uh, you know, years ago when uh, President Clinton had uh, uh, a lot of dialogues going on about uh, 
um, economics and ecology. Oh, it was on sustainability and issues like that. And I found people at it when I attended uh, arguing about whether we could talk, whether we needed to talk about uh, economics when we were talking about saving uh, ecology. And I realized that uh, I, I actually got to speak very briefly. I had said three minutes, I think, in which I said, the words ecology and economy both come from the Greek word ekos. And economy is ekos with nomos, the rule. So an economy is the, oh, oh sorry, I didn't say ekos means household in Greek. And they had a holarchic view of households from the family household to the city household to a national household to a global household of gods, right? Uh, so they recognized this household concept as being a concept of economy, ecology. Uh, so ecos with nomos is the rule of the household. Ecos with logos, which is ecology, is the organization of the household. And I said, why would you separate the organization of the household from the way you run it? Uh, that's, a, that's a really strange division. But the problem with our having divided is that we made the ecology subservient to our economy. We saw it only as a set of resources I mentioned earlier. And if we turned that around and made our economy subservient to the ecology, in other words, fitting our economics into planet natural ecology, right, into our ecosystems, just turning that, flipping that upside down gives you what I call ecosophy, which is ecos with Sophia, wisdom in the Bible and er everywhere we know of Sophia as the goddess of wisdom. Uh, then we have the wise society that acts with nature's rules running our economy, and that would mean that everything must be recycled. You cannot make anything that's not recyclable. None of those, what did you call it, uh, forever chemicals. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and so we would, we would ban anything that was toxic to nature, knowing that that would make it toxic to ourselves. And we would learn from nature that plants and animals belong together in ecosystems uh, for our benefit of farming. You know, the original agriculture, I believe, was hunters and gatherers spitting pits along their pathways. Uh, and that way they discovered that the foods they liked eating were growing right along the path, right? How convenient is that as a supermarket? Um, and they probably learned to eat animals because after a forest fire, something about that dead pig smelled good. Right? <laughs> and right. it was real, real easy to eat after it had been cooked. Well, and just, and <laughs> anyway. just, yeah, just recognizing what we do to the soil, we do to ourselves. And living Absolutely. in reciprocity and, and living in joy. I mean, the, the whole joy. Yes. Um, and so um, you shared your age is you're 86 now, but you're still uh, teaching. You're teaching. Um, Living economics. So what do you mean by uh, living economics? Talk, talk to us a little bit about well, that. Well, living, living economies are ecosophies. They're economies based on nature. And they're, because I live in Hawaii, I got to design courses with native elders. Hawaii had the original kind of what we call bioregionalism uh, divisions of the farmlands. 
so that you know every island has a, a, a the the top of its highest ground and and a shore all the way around and the farms were all designed to be bordered by the streams that ran down the mountains that would be the borders between farms and it meant every farm had the woodland at the top and the field growing areas in the middle and the shores and seafood at the bottom so every every farm had the whole integration of plant and animal life in its food supply and there was no competition and it was natural it preserved nature rather than fighting against it and then of course when the Europeans and Americans discovered the sandwich islands as they called them they rearranged everything they filled in the fish ponds that they were growing uh, fish that were controllable in but with access to ocean water and they they uh, paved over things and they redrew the boundaries and and just made a complete mess of <laughs> the way we humans live here and there are not more people today in these islands than there were when captain cook first set shore here and we were sustainable and now we're importing 80% of our food uh 90% of our energy when we could be making all that locally so Islands are a great example of how a living economy should be working, how they were in the past working, and how, what we can restore of those ancient ways of cooperating with nature as well as with each other. And um, so we're down to our last two minutes. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say? I know we didn't really talk much about your book, so... Um uh, oh, well, yes. The, the easiest read uh, and the most up-to-date is Gaia's Dance, uh, the story of Earth and Us. It's, uh, I thought of it as kind of a grown-up, uh, a children's book for grown-ups. It's, it's not a children's book easy to read, but it's easier than my Earth Dance, which is the more complete book. I also have a delightful uh, comic book uh, for iPhones called Bacteria Are Us with the backwards R of Toys R Us, which had just uh, uh, been closed down when I, when I was working with a wonderful cartoonist uh, to make this little iPhone thing that showed us evolution in something like 40 different comic book pages uh, to really see how we're made of the ancient bacteria and why cooperation is good for us. And, yeah, cooperation is good for us. I thank you so much for your time. And um, and so I do, I do, I, I love this. Uh, again, I'm going to go back to the beginning about ending the new food wars. It's not about fighting, but finding these places where we can be, where we can come together and all agree that our food choices affect the planet. Um, factory farming is wrong. Um, and we need to be... Um, uh, aware of future generations and our choices and being sustainable and creating a world that we want our great-great-grandchildren to live in. So I thank, you, I thank you so much, um, Elizabeth Santoris, for joining us. Um, and your website is? It's Santoris.com. It's a bit outdated, but I can be reached through it, and uh, there's a lot of free stuff on it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome, Laura, and big aloha to everyone. Aloha. Aloha.